It is a joy to be in this pulpit every time I am here, uh, and I wish I could see more of you. I hope that this will be profitable for you today, despite the introduction. I don't come to you today as Balaam's ass, or as the Pope, for that matter. I think sometimes people think that in churches where the law of God is upheld, and in churches where the Sabbath is held forth as a privilege and a duty of God's people, that we do nothing more as elders and pastors but sit around and make up rules and regulations for people to follow so that you can, you know, ask all these questions and then tonight come and the three popes will be here together to say yes and no to that. That really is not the spirit with which uh, you've been introduced to the Sabbath in this series. I've had the privilege of listening to your pastor's sermons by tape leading up to this. And in one sense, I'm not going to leave it here, but in one sense, if you have heard what Pastor Wagner has told you, you don't need today's sermon. Now, because we're all trying to grow up in Jesus, I'm going to give you the sermon, try to help you out. But, you know, if our hearts were attuned to what he has preached to you, then we wouldn't worry, I think, a great deal about all the details of what we should or should not do on the Sabbath. You know, you're supposed to do works of necessity. All of you should brush your teeth on the Sabbath. You want any children saying, no, that's work, Mom, I can't do that. But you see, it would be terrible if we got into a long, knock-down, drag-out discussion about whether it's okay to brush your teeth, but what about flossing? Now, maybe that's going just a little too far. You see, that's just a bit too much. In order to remind you of what the spirit of this day is, and I hope in that spirit you'll enter into hearing the exposition of God's Word Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah, the 58th chapter, and I'll read two verses that you've been exposed to already, but should be on your heart. Isaiah 58, at the 13th verse. Hear now God's word. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy of Jehovah honorable, and shalt honor it, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Then shalt thou delight thyself in Jehovah, and I will make thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and I will feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of Jehovah hath spoken it. Amen. And in the New Testament, turn with me to Mark, the second chapter, at the 23rd verse. Mark 2, we continue reading at verse 23. And it came to pass that he was going on the Sabbath day through the grain fields. And his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Did ye never read what David did when he had need and was hungry? he and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the showbread, which it is not lawful to eat save for the priest, and gave also to them that were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And thus far the reading of God's word. I have an Olympic question to begin with this morning. No, not the question whether 
Tanya Harding should be skating in the Olympics. That's the one that's consumed our minds. But I have a different kind of question for you. I want you to imagine that Dr. Bonson was a downhill skier. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I sit around and daydream sometimes, you know, that I'm playing for the Lakers or that I'm a skier or something like that. Just do that with me for a minute. Imagine that not only was I a downhill skier, but I was especially good. And I could beat all the competition. In fact, I had beat all the competition in this country, and I had been named to the Olympic team. And imagine, because of my desire to make use of this as a platform to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, that I had enlisted the prayers of my friends and my church and so forth, to provide opportunity for this not to glorify me, but to glorify the Lord. And that not only would I win in the Olympics, but I would give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and that people would hear of my faith and be pointed to Jesus through this. And imagine that I went to Norway to engage in this Christian ministry and to use the gifts God had given me only to find out that I had been scheduled to ski on Sunday. Now, what should I do? You know what most Christians would tell you? I'm not interested right now in the bottom line answer. I'm interested in how we reach the bottom line. You know what most Christians would do immediately? They'd start looking at the end to be accomplished, and they would let that dictate to them the way in which you get there. Most Christians would tell you, that if you can see a good reason for that, and especially if it's a pious reason, if it's something that you've prepared for for years and God's given this wonderful opportunity, and just think the church is behind you and praying for this, obviously you should look at the end and the good that can come out of it and decide how you should pursue that. But the Bible teaches us that the end does not justify the means. Now I'm going to Correct that. The end does justify the means in the Bible. But the way we understand that expression, the end justifies the means, is not at all supported by the teaching of God's Word. For you see, the Bible tells us that if we pursue the kingdom of God above all, all the other things of life will be added to us. And so if we are pursuing the kingdom of God, you can be very sure that nothing's going to be left out. In that sense, the end will justify the way we get there. But you have to understand, you're not pursuing the kingdom of God first and foremost if you're living contrary to the law of the king. And so when the king tells you, I want you to approach me in the following way, I want you to live your life in the following way, and you say, well, but I have a better idea on how I can honor you as the king. I've already dethroned him. I've already made myself the final moral authority. And so it is true that if we pursued the kingdom of God above all, if that was truly in our hearts and we were pure in our motivation and we understood the prerogatives and sovereignty of the king, then the end would justify the means. But you know, for most of us, it isn't that easy, is it? That's why we need sermons like today and that's why we need the law of God because it's true enough that if we loved God, we would do all the right things. That's all it takes, the love of God. Sometimes, over the last few years, I've been asked by young people to speak to them about principles of dating. Young people in that hormonal stage of their lives want to know, how far can we go? 
And so to get their attention, I usually begin my lectures on dating by telling them, love God and do anything you want to do. Really? Anything we want to do? I said, yeah, if you love God. And I think you can see what follows. And I said, well, now, what is it to love God? Do we really love God when we take advantage of one another selfishly? Is that the love of God and so forth? It turns out that when we give general moral precepts, seek first the kingdom of God, love God, and so forth, if we leave it just at that, our selfish, sinful, rationalizing hearts find ways to do what we want to do and turn out not to love God and not to pursue his kingdom at all. And that's why we need the law of God. And that's why we need sermons that expound with some detail and specificity what it means to love God, what it means to pursue his kingdom. General moral precepts are in the end without value if we keep them abstract. People in the church, in fact, people in the world would love it if Christians would keep our moral principles abstract. Think about this for a minute. No one has any trouble with the call for justice. Even criminals don't have any problem with the call for justice, as long as that's all you ever do, say, do the right thing. We need justice. They'd say, that's right, and our view of justice is not your view of justice. But if you just leave it at the level of pursue justice, you'll not get much argument from anybody. How would you like to play a football game with this rule? You know, we're not going to be legalists. We're not going to get together and have rule books. After all, this is the dispensation of grace, right? Would Christians play football with rules? Of course not. We're going to get together and we're going to play our football game, and the only principle we're going to have is fair play. Okay? You follow fair play, we'll follow fair play. Okay, let's get out on the field. Now, what would you think that loving arrangement would produce? I think a few dead bodies, probably. <laughs> you see, general abstract principles of morality are good as summaries, but they will not bring us to the point of obeying God. They will not help us to get along with one another. We need to get beyond just those abstract principles and get very detailed. We have to apply them. And so what Pastor Wagner has done up to this Sabbath morning in preparing you for asking the question what you should do is very important. But we have to go beyond that. We have to make some specific applications. I will not today try to convince you that you should keep the Sabbath. I think he's done a wonderful job. In fact, if you're not convinced, go back, you know, and start again. Listen to them again, and then come hear what I have to say. My point today is how should we? observe the Sabbath. This is where the rubber meets the road. And so anybody who has any objections, you notice there's a method in this fellow's madness. He lets, the, he, he, he lets on, you're supposed to keep the Sabbath, and then I come here to tell you how to do it. So who's the bad guy? Right? Yeah. Your mom and your dad, you, you, you guys know how to do this, right? Dad tells the kids they're supposed to do something, and they want to know the details. Ask your mother. <laughs> When's it supposed to be done by? Ask your mother. Okay, so that if, if it really does pinch, it's the person who puts the pinch on that's going to be remembered. So you can remember me for giving you this bad day. I'm going to begin with a couple of introductory remarks, and I'm going to try to go through the principles that you should use in answering questions about what you should do on the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath. Please remember, as you've been taught, that there's a distinction between the Sabbath as a creation mandate and the Sabbath as a redemptive 
privilege. You may remember back a couple of sermons when your pastor told you that there is a motivation for the Sabbath given at creation, and that's mentioned in Exodus, the 20th chapter. But there's a further motivation for keeping the Sabbath that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 5. The first motivation is you are to be the image of God. You are to imitate God. And here's God's pattern. He worked six days. He rested and rejoiced in the seventh day in the work that he had accomplished. And so you are to work six and you are to rest in God the seventh. That's a creation principle. But then when we come to Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, we see that God's people who have been redeemed from slavery, God's people who know his grace and salvation, have a further motivation for keeping the Sabbath, and that's that they have been redeemed. And so God says, I want you to remember your salvation. And so you rest on the Sabbath day. And the reason I'm bringing that up now is that this church has a reputation and this preacher has a reputation for believing that the civil magistrate should honor the law of God. And I want to make it crystal clear at the beginning of our presentation today that not everything that I'll be telling you today is for the civil magistrate to enforce. I'm not going to be talking about the Sabbath as a civil principle. I do believe that, and if you wanted, we could talk about that, maybe tonight or at some other time. That's a very difficult thing in our day and age. When people talk about the state enforcing the Sabbath, we have this long history of blue laws in our country, and how people make fun of them. Just recently, since my trip to London, Great Britain has now repealed its blue laws. Do you know that they had blue laws that forbade shops to be open on Sunday? And they had them right up to 1994. When I was there, I mean, I never would have thought this. You know, we've given up blue laws in our country, and we're usually more liberal. Or it seems to me we would be further down the road than they would. And yet they still had these laws. And yet as we were driving to church one Sunday morning, I noticed all the big department stores were open, all the little shops were open. I asked about that. I said, if you still have blue laws, why are they open? They said, well, because what the state does is they have a very minimal fine, and everybody's willing to pay the fine, then they stay open. And so it's kind of made a mockery of the law, and so finally, Parliament repealed the law. They said, this is ridiculous, no one's keeping it anyway. So we could talk about the question about should stores be open, what should the state do, but that's not what I'm talking about today. I don't want anyone to leave here and say, Dr. Bonson was teaching us that the state should force people to go to church and worship God. I don't believe that. I believe that worship is a privilege of God's redeemed people. And the state as an institution that guards the creation and guards the principles that have to do with all mankind, and not just the redeemed, the state is not to enforce the Sabbath in terms of positive religious duty. I do believe the state should protect the Sabbath as a creation mandate. And again, we'll talk about that at some other point. But I've said it, and I hope that you'll remember this now. I'm talking about the Sabbath as we approach it as believers, as both a creation mandate and a redemptive privilege. And as we look at the principles by which we answer our questions, please remember, we have to answer, we have to answer according to God's word. That's hard because individual inclination and social tradition, even church tradition, often get in the way of our having 
a pure love for God that says, I'm going to go to his word and let his word be my guide. It's much easier to say, I'm going to let my heart be my guide. What, do I, what seems right to me? But of course, whenever you find yourself asking that kind of question, you should jump back in fear. Because if you were to live your life on the basis of what seemed right to you, you'd be way, way, way down the road from the kingdom of God. Those who are in the kingdom of God realize that that's how we got into trouble, doing what seemed right to us. And so let's admit that we are sinners, we are fallen, and those of us who are believers and not perfectly sanctified, we need God's direction. The issue here is what does Scripture teach? Please avoid two extremes. They are opposite of one another, but they are equally deadly for the Christian life. First of all, the extreme of license. There are some Christians who want to get rid of details. You know, maximize freedom. And eventually what you end up with is kind of a relativistic approach to ethics where everyone does what's right in his own eyes. So you have the extreme of license. Those who are guilty of the sin of license take away from God's word. They say, oh, don't pay attention to the details. That's pharisaical. You wouldn't want to do that. The other extreme, which is the opposite, but it's equally deadly, is the extreme of Pharisaism. You don't take away details, you add details to the law of God. What the Pharisees, you see, this may have sounded good. It might even be appealing to you. The Pharisees said, well, if we're not going to break the laws of God, why don't we build a hedge around the laws of God, of our own rules, so that we'll never get close enough to breaking the laws of God. So if we, we make more human traditions and laws, then that'll keep us from ever violating the holy laws of God. And so they got into great debates over how many steps you could take on the Sabbath before you were engaged in labor. And if you got an answer to that question and you made sure you didn't take that many steps, then you wouldn't have to worry about whether you ever got close to the place of working on the Sabbath. That's an equally deadly mistake, spiritually speaking. Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, verse 2, God tells us that we are not to add to or diminish from his law. And so let's make sure as we approach our subject today that we're not guilty of license or pharisaism. We want to stick to the middle here. What has God said? Not what has man said or what does man want? What do we take away? What do we add? But rather, what has God himself taught us? And I'm going to try to do this, as you can see from your outline, primarily by giving you three principles that are positive, three principles that are negative with respect to the Sabbath. And then I'll try to make some specific applications and then talk to you about how you're going to get along with each other when you disagree. Positive principles, positive functions of the Sabbath. I kind of wish this is the only thing I had to talk about this morning. You know, I wish we looked at the Sabbath as an opportunity, like what things can we do on Sunday that we're not able to do the other days of the week? So often our approach, I think you know that, we've been building up to this, so I'm going to say it now. Our approach is, what am I giving up? What can I not do? What are the things that I wish I were able to do or permitted to do, and now Dr. Bonson, preaching the Bible, is going to tell me I can't do them? 
Now I have to do that because it's the other side of the coin of obedience. There's the positive and the negative. But again, if we had the right attitude, if we looked for doing what God wants us to do, maybe those other things would be crowded out of the way and we wouldn't be so concerned with them. What are the things we should look forward to do on the Lord's Day? Well, obviously, the necessities of life have to be done. You do have to brush your teeth. You should get dressed before you come to church. Okay? So you eat your food and do those things which are just part of the normal course of life. So I'm not telling you that you can only do rest, worship, and mercy. The necessities of life were included too. But beyond the necessities of life, what should you pursue on the Lord's Day? We've already read as part of our worship service this morning the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm going to go a bit beyond that and read the larger catechism for you. The larger catechism puts our confession of faith in question and answer format and gives a great deal more detail with respect to the law of God. And then the 117th question of the larger catechism, we read, how is the Sabbath of the Lord's day to be sanctified? You didn't need me to come here and preach. It's right here. Already been answered for you. Here's the answer. The Sabbath or Lord's day is to be sanctified by a holy resting all the day. Not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful. And making it our delight to spend the whole time except so much of it as is taken up in works of necessity and mercy, in the public and private exercises of God's worship. And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts, and with such foresight, diligence, and moderation, to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business, that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. Three things the Bible tells you are your great opportunities on the Lord's Day. First of all, to rest. That should be obvious, right? It's the day of rest. It's God's consecrated day of rest. And according to Exodus, the 20th chapter, we are to make this a holy day. Holy means set apart, consecrated, different, distinct. And it's to be a day of rest because it is set apart from the six days of what? Of labor and work. And so the first and most obvious principle is, is this being used by you, by your family, is this being used as a day of rest from our ordinary labors? Have we set apart the day from our worldly business? And as the Catechism says, not worldly in the sense of sinful business, even those things which are legitimate on other days, our worldly affairs, are not to be pursued on this day. And look at that as a privilege. I often have to take a nap. And um, some people kid me about that and say, wow, I sure wish I had an excuse to take a nap every day. My health requires it. And I look at it as an obstacle many times because I have things I have to get done, but I know I'm going to be sick if I don't go ahead and get my rest. And so I do that. Now look how much God loves me, and you too. God says there's one day in seven, I'm telling you, do what's for your own good, rest. Don't burn yourself out, don't labor all the time, stop and enjoy me. That's an order. 
That's the sort of order you shouldn't need to be ordered to do. You say, you mean I get to take a day off? God says, that's right. I want you to rest. In fact, Jesus is so upset with the Pharisees in our scripture reading in Mark, the second chapter. He says, you don't understand the priorities. Man was not made for the Sabbath. God didn't create man so he'd have a little white rat that would run the maze of the Sabbath and do everything right. God gave the Sabbath to man as a gift. The Sabbath was made for the good of man. And so rejoice in this. Say, God, you love me. I don't have to go to work today. Rest in the Lord. And does that mean you can take a nap on Sunday? I don't know how the Puritans got it wrong. They, they didn't usually get things wrong. And I very much uh, uphold and endorse and commend the confession and catechisms of our church. But many people have pointed out that if you read in a strict and literal way what the Puritans said about the Sabbath, that you really shouldn't take a nap. I even knew some Presbyterians in the South when I was teaching seminary down there who believed it was wrong for people to take a nap on Sunday. Well, we won't get into how you make that big a mistake. I'm just going to point out that's a big mistake. That's a real big mistake. If this is a day of rest, then obviously you can rest your body on the Lord's day. Let's remember, secondly, it's a day of worship, however, because there are some people who don't see all that the Bible teaches, and they say, well, that means I can sleep through the morning, not get up and go to church. It's a day of worship. Leviticus 23, verse 3. Please turn there in your Bibles. I want you to see this. Leviticus 23, 3. The reason I'm insisting that you look at it in your Bibles is because I've read people who have written about the Sabbath who tell us it's a day of rest, not primarily a day of worship. In fact, we're told that in the Old Testament, it wasn't a day of worship at all. It was only a day of rest. I've actually read people who are Bible scholars say that kind of thing. Is that what your Bible says? Leviticus 23, verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest. And notice what it goes on to say, a holy convocation. Ye shall do no manner of work, it is a Sabbath unto Jehovah in all your dwellings. A holy convocation. That's a gathering, a calling out of God's people to gather together to worship Him. It's a holy day of worship, this Sabbath. And so we are supposed to worship God on the day in which He invites us to come into His presence and to rest in Him. In Luke 4.16, we read that it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. You know, if, um, if they were giving Sunday school pins back in those days, Jesus would have had the longest one imaginable. It was his custom. He regularly went to synagogue on the Sabbath. And in Acts 20, verse 7, we see that it was the pattern of the early church to gather together and to worship on the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day. In fact, that day was so much given to this that in the 20th chapter of Acts, we read that Paul preached till midnight. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. We'll just stick to the outline. We'll be done in time for you to get home. The roast won't burn. But the early church and the pattern of Jesus and the teaching of the Old Testament are alike. That on this day that the Lord has given us, we are to gather to worship God, to praise his name and hear his word have fellowship with his people. Even before man fell into sin, 
as Pastor Wagner explained to you. The Sabbath was a day when men should enter into God's pleasure and God's rest. It was a special day of worship and fellowship with God even before the fall. But then after man fell into sin, when we get into the realm of redemption, we learn all the more that we rest on the Sabbath and stop working our way into heaven. We do not get by in this world or the world to come by our own efforts. We are not self-sufficient. The Sabbath reminds us we're to rest in Jesus. He's our Sabbath. He's our rest. And those who don't know Jesus have no rest before God. And when they have no rest before God in God's world, they have no rest either. And so this is a day of worship and a day of opportunity for prayer and Bible reading. Let me tell you a little bit about yourselves. I haven't interviewed you, but I know this is true. All of you fail to read the Bible regularly. And all of you fail to pray regularly. And if I were to come around, or one of your pastors was to come around, the elders were to come, and to talk to you about having time every day to draw close to God, to pray at length, not just a quickie, you know, before you eat, and study God's Word, you would all say, oh, I just wish I had more time, Pastor. If I had more time, that's what I would do. But i got news for you. You have the time to do it. It may not always be every day of the week, which I would still commend to you. But you know, God says, look, I'm calling a time out from everything else, so you have one whole day to do these things that you say are on your heart. And so let me ask you, is that what you use Sunday for? I've already told you it's all right to take a nap. So I'm not saying that you have to be consumed every minute of the day in private or corporate worship. But apart from resting your body and taking that nap and the duties of your family, the acts of necessity, how much of Sunday do you give to prayer and to reading your Bible, to studying your Bible, actually pulling down a dictionary and looking up what you didn't understand, or reading a commentary? God says, this is for your delight, that you might know me. You know something about teenagers when they date? When they think they've fallen in love with each other, they want to spend a lot of time with each other. They want to spend a lot of phone time with each other. They want to go out all the time. Now, let's let the girls answer this question. How would you feel if some guy said, you know, I think I love you? But then every opportunity he had to spend time with you, he, he found a way to go play basketball with his friends or to watch TV or to work overtime. Just never took the opportunity to be with you. What if you made yourself available? You called him and said, well, Bill, I'm available Friday and Saturday. They're yours. Just take them. And he found other things to do. How long would it take you to decide, I don't think this guy really cares a whole lot for me? Why is it we can figure that out on the earthly level, but we don't go on to make the obvious application? What does God feel toward us? When he says, I've lined out this whole day. There's nothing else on the schedule for you. No duty you have to do. Just get to know me better. And we say, well, maybe next week, Lord. Next month, I'll work it into my schedule. That's a shameful testimony. And you should be ashamed of yourselves as I am ashamed of myself that we don't take the Lord's day to know the Lord and to love Him. 
And if we couldn't read our Bibles this week or not as much as we wanted or pray, we'd say, thank you, God. Now I can do what I've always wanted to do. You better start asking, do you really want to know God that well? Maybe getting that close to God is just too intimate. Maybe it's too frightening. Maybe it isn't really a priority in your heart after all. The Lord's Day is a day of rest. It's a day of worship. And it's a day of mercy. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 12, verses 9 to 14. Matthew 12, at the ninth verse. And he departed thence and went into their synagogue. And behold, a man having a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, they, they needed sermons like you were getting today. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? But of course, they weren't asking in the way that you asked me to come preach to you, because you asked, I trust, you have good charitable Christian hearts because you want to obey God. They asked because they thought they had the answers and they were going to jump on what Jesus said. They asked that they might accuse him. And he said unto them, What man shall there be of you that shall have one sheep, and if this fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man of more value than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath day. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole as the other. Have you ever tried to get into the mind of some of the Bible characters? I think it would be fascinating to be this man who has the withered hand. And here he hears the Pharisees and Jesus getting into debate over theology. I bet he was saying, don't mess up this situation. Here's my great opportunity to have this prophet who has the power to heal, and you're going to argue with him about whether it's the Sabbath? And he would have had it right. Because the Pharisees did not see this as a day when the opportunity for good should shine. They saw it rather as a day when they might oppose the Lord of glory. So Jesus shuts them down argumentatively, uses an analogy. He says, you all know you can go out and save your sheep on the Sabbath, and you're going to say to me that I shouldn't save something more valuable than sheep? I shouldn't save men? And he healed the man's hand on the spot. Now, if you want an example of spiritual perversity, read the next verse. Here the Pharisees have had their debate. Jesus has shut them down and shown them the truth. He has then shown them a mighty miracle, and it says that the Pharisees went out and took counsel against them how they might destroy him. Talk about stupidity. You're talking about a man who has the ability to heal the sick and even raise the dead, and they plotted how they might destroy him. That's really amazing. But I want you to see here that Jesus unequivocally declares it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I don't think it was strenuous labor for Jesus to do this. I, I have no reason to think that. But let's make it very clear that strenuous labor, laborious work, would be acceptable if it was in the interest of saving a sheep or in saving a human being or showing mercy to people in doing what is good. 
it is perfectly all right to do deeds of charity, to show mercy to people, to extend rest and salvation to them, using that in the broadest sense, even if it wears us out on the Lord's day. So what can you do? What should you look forward to doing? Rest, worship, and show mercy. What are the things the Bible tells us you should not do? Three things as well to make it easy to remember. You shouldn't work, you shouldn't profit, and you shouldn't compete. Let me um, pursue this rather quickly with you. Obviously, if we're to rest from our work, then what's forbidden is that we should work, that we should do our regular employments on the Lord's day. Even those things which are good to do, those things which will ordinarily be perfectly acceptable to God, you are not to do them on the Lord's day. That's a sanctified, special, and distinct day. And that's why when um, I was in college, I felt it was wrong for the college to open the library on Sunday. Is it wrong to read on Sunday? No. But what do students do as their regular work? They study. And so have they made the Lord's Day special? Have they made it holy and distinct? If they study six days, of course, the irony is most of the students that I knew, including yours truly, would be inclined not so much to study on those days than hurry up on Sunday to get ready for Monday. But if they study six days and then the library is open to study on the seventh, have they made it a holy day? Not at all. Those of you who are students, even if you're in a Christian school, even if you want to do your Bible assignment, don't do it on Sunday. Don't do it on the Lord's Day. You are to rest. If you want to study your Bible on the Lord's Day, that's great. Just make sure you don't study what's going to be on the quiz tomorrow. It means you have to have an honest heart before God so you're not rationalized and say, oh, I think I'd like to look at, it just so happens, what we're going to be asked about tomorrow. No, stay away from that. Don't do your ordinary labor. And we don't do strenuous labor on this day either. Look at Jeremiah 17, verse 21. Jeremiah 17, verses 21 and 22. Thus saith Jehovah, take heed to yourselves. And bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day. Neither do ye any work, but hallow ye the Sabbath day, as I commanded your fathers. Now this tells us we're not to do any work, but notice particularly as a specific application, not anything burdensome. You're not to carry any burden on that day. You're not to do your ordinary labors, but you're not to do labors which are strenuous either. Unless what? I've already told you. Unless you're working to show mercy to others. You can pull that sheep out of the pit, and you can go and help people that are in need on the Sabbath. But other than that, you don't do hard work on the Sabbath. Now, I know what you're all thinking. But Dr. Bonson, aren't you working on the Sabbath? Doesn't Pastor Wagner work on the Sabbath? Oh, but you should have read your Bible, so the Lord already anticipated that one. Matthew 12, verse 5. Jesus says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath day the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Jesus said if you'd read the law, you'd know that those who are ordained to divine service, they do work on the Lord's day. 
And in that sense, they outwardly appear to profane the day. And yet, Jesus says, they are without guilt. They're guiltless because God has called them to work in that way. Maybe one of the questions you'll ask us tonight is, well, does that mean pastors should take another day off? So they, um, though they work on Sunday, they have a day of rest. That would be an interesting discussion. But my point here is, apart from the Levites, the priests, or those who were ordained to divine service, apart from your pastors, you shouldn't be working, you shouldn't be doing strenuous labor on the Lord's day. Should you work out on Sunday? Pump some iron? What's it say here? Not to bear any burden. If you work hard, it better be in the interest of showing mercy to other people or being a Levite who works hard on Sunday to, to minister to other people. But you're not supposed to do strenuous labor. Other than that, the Lord's Day. Secondly, you're not to make profit on the Lord's Day. You're not to make money. Turn again to Nehemiah 13, verses 15 to 18. Nehemiah 13, we'll begin reading at verse 15. In those days saw I in Judah some men treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses therewith, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein, who brought in fish and all manner of wares, and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this that you do and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. This is not a day for merchandising. This is not a day for making money. This is not a day for your own profit. Our next point will stress that even more. You are not to work, you're not to make your money on the Sabbath day. By the way, if you go on to read after this, when Nehemiah gets them to start observing the Sabbath, you know what they started doing? Then they prepared, they were ready to come into the city as soon as the day was over. That is, they used the Sabbath day to gather all their things outside the wall of Jerusalem. Then when the Sabbath was over, then they could bring them in. And he was equally upset about that. Because he said, you haven't given up your worldly affairs and business. You've just avoided actually making the transition or the transaction for money on the Sabbath. We're not supposed to be involved in worldly concerns, making money or profiting on the Lord's day. And so now you're going to ask Dr. Bonson, what if my employer requires me to work? That's a tough one. What should you do if you're required to work? And I'm going to give you layers of answers here. First of all, what you should do is work your way out of that. I know it's not always possible. That's why there's going to be other layers of instruction here. But I have found often in my counseling when people come to me with that problem, that if they were to do certain things, they could make an adjustment, the schedule at work, or they might get an advance, you know, where they have priority or maybe get in a position, I even had somebody who worked his way up to the position where he scheduled people so he wouldn't have to work on Sunday. Work your way out of it. But now you say, what if it isn't that easy? And go to your employer and explain your religious convictions. 
What a great opportunity to bear testimony that you don't belong to yourself, but you belong to another. Go to your employer and say, I can't work on Sunday. That's the day where my Lord asked me to come and worship him, and I feel I must do that. And show your employer what a great employee you are for that reason. Now that you pat yourself on the back and you say, I hope that that tells you that because I belong to the Lord, you can count on me. I'm going to work hard for you six days. I'm going to be honest, and I'm a person of principle. That, you know, goes a long way in the work market. The employers need people like that. And so it's not altogether a bad thing to go and tell them. Now, I realize many people have a real brittle view of what religious people are like, you know, and they, they think we just follow these ritual rules that have no good reason. But you can explain the Sabbath, you know, kind of bone up on what Pastor Wagner's given you and make it an opportunity to testify to your employer. Say, God made us to rest on that day, and Jesus redeemed us. What a great opportunity. Maybe you'd like to close the store on Sunday. Why not? Why do we always take it for granted that the secular world gets its way? Why don't we just speak up about that? Not, it doesn't always have to be prophetic denunciation, you know? You know, woe is you, you sinners, you're breaking the Sabbath, I refuse to do that. That's the spirit with which we sometimes hear these calls, but that's not what I'm saying. Can't you go in and quietly and meekly, firmly and clearly explain why you can't work on Sunday? And then what if you've done that and your employer says, tough, I don't want to hear any of that religious nonsense. You'll work or you'll leave this firm. Well, I think you have some options here. There aren't a whole lot. But first of all, it would be best if you said, well, if that's the way it's going to be, then I'm going to follow Jesus. Now, I'd make an exception, however. I would. It'd be interesting to see if your other pastors agree with this. I, I think they will, but in some senses, when you have an employer that requires you to work upon threat of cutting off your paycheck, and if you're in a situation where that means your family's not going to eat that week, you can't take care of your children, you may be forced to work. You've already made your testimony. You've already raised your protest. But you're being compelled to work, and you have to do that, lest your family suffer. And I don't mean suffer, they can't go on vacation this year. That's the way most of us are. Oh, look, we're going to have to give up, you know. There goes HBO if I don't work. Well, so be it. You can lose HBO. But if you're really in a situation where you can't make the rent, you can't, you know, buy groceries for your family, then I would counsel you to work and start looking for that other job. And as soon as you can, get out of that situation. And the reason I say that is because in the ancient world, there were slaves who would become Christians. They'd be converted. And you know, when the slave would get converted, that didn't automatically mean that the master was converted. The master would say, you're going to get up and work today. Well, this is my day off because the Lord has granted it. The pagan master didn't care a bit. The slave would be beat if he didn't get up and work. We're not technically slaves, I know that. We're not going to be beaten if we don't get up and work for the firm or go to the store or whatever it may be. But there is some partial analogy, I think, that allows room for you to go ahead and make sure the family eats this week, you pay the rent, but you must work your way out of that situation. 
God would have you do that. We're not to make money on Sunday. Thirdly, this is not a day for competition. Now, of course, it's not a day for financial competition. In one sense, we've already said that. Many people think, I, I've known people, my father for a while was a real estate agent and so forth. This is really tough in the real estate market, you know, because Sunday's a big day for showing houses and selling houses. Many people will say, well, I've got to work if I'm going to keep up with everybody else. I'm going to lose out on these sales. Other people are going to, you know, cut in there and get the commission and so forth. And it's not just real estate. It's a lot of different places where, you know, Sunday is supposed to be the day when you really maximize your profits. But it's not a day for financial competition. But it's not a day for other kinds of competition either. That's my point. Sunday is not a day for personal competition. It's not a day for personal competition for attention. It's not a day for personal competition for honor. Because it's not a day when we are self-oriented at all. Why am I saying that? Because sometimes it's the case, and I, and I don't like to preach about my children, so don't take it wrong. They, I, I love my children. They mean well, and I think they're good Christians. But every once in a while, they think, well, Dad, we could relax by shooting a few baskets, right? So, yeah, you could. But I know you guys, and I don't think you can just go out there and shoot a few baskets and relax. Because one of you is going to want to make sure that you get one more basket than the other guy. Now, let's say they were perfectly sanctified, you know, almost to the point of taking the last step of glorification, and that wouldn't be any problem. Well, then I'd say, fine, go shoot a few baskets. Not strenuous labor, not working out hard, working up a sweat sort of thing. But if you're going to do this, it's got to be a time for fellowship and drawing together with God's people, not a day for outdoing the other guy. That's why I wonder about those sword drills we used to have in church many years ago. <laughs> I'm going to get more than this other person over here, you know. That's not really what the Lord's Day is about, putting other people down and shoving yourself up. It's not a day for competition. Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14, makes that point very strongly. It says, it's not a day for your pleasure. It's not a day for you to be exalted or to get ahead. I want to give you a few supporting texts for that thought as well. Acts 2, verses 44 and 45. Well, you capitalists are going to love this. Acts 2, 44. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all according as any man had need. And that's the spirit of worship among God's people. It isn't always evident among us. I have to admit it's not always, you know, evident in my own heart by, you know, honest investigation of what's going on there. But when I come to worship with God's people, my spirit should be, if anybody has need, I'll sell what I've got and make sure that they are provided for. That's the very opposite of the spirit of competition, which is appropriate. The six days that you labor, go out there, have the best business in the world. But when you come to worship God in the Lord's day, you put aside your things and you care about the things of others. Hebrews 10, verse 25. This verse is often used to show people that they are not to absent themselves from church, from worshiping with God's people. It says, not forsaking our own assembling together as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another, 
and so much the more as you see the day drawing near. What I'd like you to do, though, is see what the context is for this. Back up to verse 24. Verse 24 sets the context for not despising the assembling of God's people. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking our own assembly. You see that? We draw together to consider one another, to exhort one another to do what is good and right. Sunday is a day not only that you remember you get outside yourself and rest in the Lord, you get out your, outside of yourself altruistically to do good to others and in worship to forget your own needs and help the other, provoke the other to good works. Consider the needs of others. Even if it means going home and selling your furniture that someone's medical bills would be paid, that's the spirit of the Lord's day. Now, why can you be so free in giving on the Lord's day? Because God says, if you honor my day, I'll take care of you. Do you believe that? Oh, I know, you all say you do. Do you believe that? Are you willing to do that? Do you really think God will take care of you? Or do you think God's just going to deprive you of the things that make you happy in this world? Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Jesus says, all the rest will be given to you. If you honor the Sabbath day, then you are not going to have a spirit of competition. You're not going to be engaged in money-making and profiteering. You're not going to be doing your regular employments and strenuous labor. Now, very quickly, I want to make a note here before we go into the next point in the outline. I have not listed here as principles that are prohibited pleasure and recreation. I have to tell you that since if you do any reading on the subject, you're going to see that in traditional Reformed literature, you're told you're not to do your pleasure, you're not to engage in recreation. And the reason why I haven't listed that on my outline is because I really believe those words are so ambiguous as to be of no help whatsoever in helping you today. I just don't think it's going to get you down the road to where you're supposed to be. And on top of it, because they're ambiguous, they will create misconstrued controversy in the church. I've seen this all my life. I've Ever since I started going to church, I've been in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I confess I haven't always been happy about that, but that is where I have been. And I know a great deal of its history, and I've watched the way the whole Sabbath question has been debated in our denomination and so forth. And um, it's not that I disagree with what some people say about the Sabbath that concerns me today. That's going to happen in this world. And that's why the last point on our outline is, how do we live with each other when we disagree? But what bothers me is that we get into debates that aren't necessary because we have word quibbles. You've seen in Isaiah, for instance, where it says, you're not to do your pleasure. And then what happens is you'll have somebody come along, I hope well-meaning, but nevertheless poorly thinking, and in a well-meaning way say, well, if you're doing things which are pleasurable, then you're violating the Sabbath. Think about it. But we're supposed to take delight in worshiping God, right? What if I take pleasure in worship? Well, then, then by that literal misconstrual of the text, I shouldn't be worshiping God because that's pleasurable to me. And I'm not trying to make myself out to be a spiritual giant, but in all honesty, there are days when I really have pleasure in worshiping God. I wish all of the days were like that. 
But on those days, have I violated the Sabbath because I am doing what is pleasurable? Of course not. In Isaiah, the point is, when it says you're not to do your pleasure, that's an English translation of Hebrew. What it says is you're not to do your own will. Your pleasure meaning what comes to you, what pleases you, rather than what God would have you do on that day. And that leaves the question open, what would God have me do on that day? I'd like to quote for you the man I think is the greatest Hebrew scholar of the 20th century, greatest Hebrew scholar that was a Bible-believing evangelical reform scholar anyway, E.J. Young. And in his commentary on this text in Isaiah 58, just listen to what he says. He says, thy pleasure, the words thy pleasure, is that which pleases man instead of God. It is a gross misunderstanding to interpret as though the words meant that which is pleasant. And to conclude from this, that the prophet's only concern is that the Sabbath be a day not of pleasure, but of gloom. Rather, it is the pleasure of man in contrast to that of God that is brought to the fore. He's exactly right. You see, there are so many people in this world who pride themselves in being Sabbath keepers. And what they mean by keeping the Sabbath is being gloomy, being down in the mouth. Don't ever be happy. Don't ever rejoice. Hey, you know what? If you read the Bible correctly, this should be a day where it's hard to keep from dancing because you're so happy. It should be a very pleasurable day. Dr. Young is very right to point that out to us. It doesn't help you to say, don't do your pleasure, if you're going to go home and think, oh, that means I've got to be unhappy today. And then also in the Westminster Larger Catechism, we read that we're supposed to put aside all worldly employments and recreations. Notice it doesn't say put aside all recreation. But that's the way it's been interpreted for me many times. I've, I've told some of you this story. I'll repeat it for all of you here. Many years ago in the OPC, family camp used to be over a Sunday. And my, uh, my parents went and took their children with them and... Um, as you might guess, the question that the parents had for the elders and especially the pastors at family camp is, what can our kids do on Sunday afternoon? Well, I tell you, talk about a tight living situation. Get together with a bunch of Sabbath keepers, you know, on Sunday when you've got children around. Most of the adults, they can kind of play by the book, you know, and just kind of, we'll just watch what everybody else is doing and then follow. But the kids, they're going to go out there and they want to throw the ball around, you know? And so the, somebody finally got up the nerve to ask one of the pastors, is it all right for the children to throw the football? And then the convocation of the popes got together. And they came out with the answer, and they said, no, the children shouldn't throw the football, but it would be all right to go on a nature hike. Maybe I was just a budding logician way back then, but I thought, nah, that just doesn't work. You know, it's like, you're going to tell me this kind of motion is sinful on Sunday, but this kind of motion is okay on Sunday? Well, I've known people who tell you you're not supposed to do anything that's connected with sports. And I, it's going to be hard to believe because this congregation knows my health problems, but I was once a tennis player. And I hope a fairly good one, you know, to the California State Finals and so forth. And I really thought, probably overpriding myself, I might even play professionally someday. And then my heart condition came up, and that was the end of that. The Lord had other plans for me. But now, I enjoy tennis. Is it all right for me to go out and hit the ball around? Okay? 
No, because the catechism says you're to refrain from your worldly recreations. That's a misreading of the catechism. Well, actually, it's not a misreading, because if you read it that way, that'd be fine. But what people mean is they say you shouldn't have any recreation. But that isn't the point. I shouldn't be doing my worldly recreations. Now, what if I had become a professional tennis player? Hey, I'd be making a whole lot more money than I am now, that's for sure. But if I had become a professional tennis player and I wanted to go play on Sunday, that would absolutely be wrong. That would be part of my worldly recreation. But, you know, I hardly get out at all. And what if I had a Sunday afternoon where I had done all the other things, had my nap, I'd had my devotions, had, you know, a family worship and so forth, and I had some time and there was a tennis court across the street. Would it be wrong for me to go over there, and not strenuously, but to spend some time hitting the ball? And I'm going to tell you, I don't think that the catechism rules that out. But as long as people have the word recreation there, they're going to say, you can't do recreation. What's the question? The question is going to be, what counts as recreation? Is this recreation? I was once told, yes, throwing the football is recreation, but a nature hike is. See, it just isn't help. These words simply bring us back to what is God's will for this day, what is displeasing recreation to him on this day, and that's why they don't appear on your outline. What can you do on the Lord's Day? What should you look forward to doing? Resting, worshiping, doing acts of mercy. What should you avoid at all costs? Working, your regular employment and strenuous labor. Avoid making money and merchandising. Avoid a spirit of competition, whether it's financial or personal. Okay, now what you've finally been waiting for, the specific applications. What about sports? What about shopping on Sunday? What about going to restaurants on Sunday? Let me see if I can answer these questions according to the principles you've been taught, and we need to close. The question of sports on Sunday. First of all, notice that it's a commentary on our culture that that's such a big question. Isn't that true? Why is it that we worry about sports on Sunday? Because sports has taken the place of religion in the hearts of most Americans. And it's not just America. But that's true. And I'm not against sports in their proper place. But you see, it's become a God to us. And now God's people, the real, living, and true, one and only God, His people, they worry about whether this idolatry of sports can now be incorporated on the Lord's day. Well, first of all, the principles I've taught you today would certainly rule out professional play on Sunday. I know a, a man in the OPC church who once played for the Buffalo Bills. And as he became a Christian and grew in the faith, he realized that it wasn't right for him to play football on Sunday. And he quit. And on all you guys about high school age and college age are going, oh, he quit. He had this opportunity and he quit. Yes. Because he said he worshiped God above all. Isn't that the first and great commandment? To have no other gods before me? That's a tough thing to say in a society that so idolizes sports that it can now push Sunday aside. It's no longer the Lord's Day. 
one of the things that really galls me, not everything gets under my skin this way, but I hate it when people speak of Super Bowl Sunday. Let me tell you something. That's the Lord's day when my Savior rose from the dead and opened the door to heaven for me. It's not the day of the Super Bowl. So, it certainly rules out professional playing on Sunday. I think it rules out regular league involvement as well, although I confess to you that when I was uh, very young and played Little League, we'd go to church, and then I would rush out right afterwards and get my uniform on and get down to the field so I could make the game. I don't think we should do that, though. Now, I can say that from personal experience, so you don't have to be embarrassed, I'll embarrass myself, because I know on the days that I had a game that though I was putting my body in church, that isn't where my mind was. And that's why I think league competition, even though recreation, I've already said, is acceptable on Sunday under appropriate circumstances, league competition puts the priority in the wrong place. It sets up something else in our minds, something else than worship, rest, and mercy. Having said that, I still believe that the principles I've taught you this morning leave certain kinds of involvement with sports permissible. For instance, what if you and a fellow believer wanted to go out and hit the tennis ball back and forth? Not a strenuous exercise, not as competition, but as a form of fellowship, just some time together. Could you do that? I think so. But you know, you'd have to really watch your heart. I know I would. I've already told you. You don't play tennis and play well if you don't have a spirit of wanting to win. And so, you know, the temptation is always there if you're going to go out to say, well, I'll just put a little more English on this one. Just remind this guy what I could have been. <laughs> but you say, that's not the point of the day. But if I went out there and it really was a time to get together with a friend and relax and so forth, of course, recreation is not in itself wrong. How about passive relaxation, viewing a game? I already told you, I hate this idea of Super Bowl Sunday. Is it wrong to watch the game on Sunday? Here's the answer. Love God and do as you please. I'm going to give you a different answer in just a minute, but I really wish I could leave it at that because the answer I'm going to give, I'm afraid many people latch on to and they don't pay attention to the spirit of love God and do as you please. The answer is yes, you can watch football, basketball, whatever it may be on Sunday. Now, here's the comeback. For years, many people have said, now, wait a minute, then you're encouraging those people to play. No, you're not. They don't even know you're watching. That's not the point. And in the day of VCRs, it's even easier to make the point. If I could tape a game on Saturday and watch it on Sunday afternoon, then in terms of what's happening in my living room, how's that different from my watching a game that's being played live? You say, well, you don't want them to be playing, Dr. Boss, and no, I don't. That's not the question. The question is, can I relax by watching that game? Can I? Yes. Do I? Do you? You know, we like to tell ourselves we do. I already, I'm sure glad my boys couldn't come today. I've been in the front room on Sunday when we were all relaxing, watching a game. <laughs> and every once in a while I'll say to them, boy, I'm sure glad this is relaxing. Sure glad the Lord's on our minds as we're watching this game. We're all screaming about the referees and you know, who's going to win and so forth. You know, that spirit of competitiveness comes back. And you have to be very careful that 
And that's why we don't want to be Pharisees either. I could give you a lot of rules to keep you from breaking the law, but if your heart's not right with God, you're going to break the Sabbath anyway. And so the answer is, it's not necessarily wrong to watch a sporting event on Sunday afternoon. Not necessarily. It's not necessarily. But how about for you? You have to be very honest with God about that. What about going to restaurants on Sunday? The point here, because this is getting to be a long lesson, the point is, are you requiring the waitress and the cook and the others to work for you on Sunday? Are you requiring them to do that? If you are, then it's absolutely forbidden. Because God says you're not only to rest, you're to give your family rest, you're to give your employees rest. Your maiden is to be resting as well. Now the difficulty, and this is where, that's why you have to have people who do logic and work in ethics and so forth, is because now we have to draw some fine distinctions. Because having put the question that way, my guess is half of you, or I don't know what the numbers are, some of you will say, well, the answer is obviously no. Some of you will say the answer is obviously yes. You be very careful about that. As a matter of fact, if a restaurant's going to be open anyway, my going in there with my family is not requiring them to work. Now, this is going to sound very bizarre. Listen closely. If I had my way, I don't usually... If I had my way, the restaurant would not be open. If I could evangelize the owner of the restaurant and, and give him some Christian nurture, I would lead him in the direction of closing his restaurant. But if it's going to be open, is it all right for me, I have to cook the meals on Sunday, is it all right for me to rest from cooking? And the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. I may rest from cooking when you have Gentiles who insist on being slaves to their labor. Let them at least benefit the people of God there. But on the other hand, what if everyone in your community were to get together with all the other churches? You know, it's the churches that keep restaurants open. I remember this so clearly. We're on vacation in Lynchburg. I won't mention the big Baptist church we went to. <laughs> And because we were on vacation, didn't have anywhere else to eat, after we went to church that night at that big Baptist church that I'm referring to, we went to a Shoney's in the South, Bob's Big Boy, okay? It was amazing. So we had this room, I mean, as big as this room full of tables, and then the pastor of this well-known church came in and went table by table greeting the members of his congregation. <laughs> And I was impressed that he knew that many people in his congregation, but I also thought, wow, if these people have been taught to keep the Sabbath, we could close this place down. Okay, we'll take the humor away from this. I mean that. If in this community of Chula Vista, all the churches were to get together, probably not going to happen this month, but if we could get all the churches together and teach Sabbath principles, we could close some restaurants. And if that were going on, I'd tell you, you'd be part of that. Close those restaurants by all means. But the issue is, if they aren't going to be closed, may you rest, may you get rest for your wife, whatever, by going in. And I'm going to, again, say, I don't think necessarily it's wrong. Somebody says, well, then why can't I go to the laundromat? Because eating is a work of necessity, and washing your clothes on Sunday is not. It's one thing to go to a restaurant, as John Murray once said, somebody's going to cook anyway. It's another thing to go to the hardware store. 
unless you're biting nails, I guess. What about shopping and merchandising? What about paid entertainments on Sunday? Well, I've been teaching you how to do this, so I'm going to leave it with you. If you are shopping for the sake of necessity, mercy, or worship, yeah, it's acceptable. So ask yourself, how often do you go to the store out of necessity, mercy, or worship? You say, well, Dr. Bonson, you set it up so there's never a time you can do that. That's not true. One day I sent somebody to the store from our church. You know why? We didn't have enough wine for communion. Now you say, but they should have done that on Saturday. You're absolutely right. They should have. And you know what? I said that. I said, I guess we're going to check the supplies before we come back next week, right? And we learned our lesson. But the issue is, should we have provided the Lord's Supper when it had been announced for God's people, even though we blew it and didn't get the wine on Saturday? And I think we did the right thing. So there are some times when worship calls for shopping. I hope not often. And I think there are some necessities, too. I had a child who was deathly sick in Mississippi once on a Sunday, and I had to get to a pharmacy to get something to get this fever down. That was a necessity. It was an act of mercy toward my children to do that. So there are some times when you may shop on Sunday. Not usually. Okay, some special notes here. First of all, the possibility of flex timing. You all know what flex timing is, right? Some firms allow their employees to come in, you know, like at 5.36 and go home early to beat the traffic patterns and so forth. Well, I think under the present circumstances, flex timing with the Sabbath isn't such a bad idea for us. When does the Sabbath begin? Read your Bibles. Sundown. Am I right? But you see, in that culture, that's when the day ended and began, sundown. In our culture, it's midnight, isn't it? Legally, that's the end of the day and the beginning of the, of the next day. Those of you, I'll appeal, appeal to the young people again. When I was in high school, sometimes, not often, but I'd go out, say for the prom, I'd get back later than midnight on Saturday night. Had I gotten into the Sabbath? Well, you know, practically, I considered my Sabbath when I got up on Sunday morning till the next morning. So which is it? Sundown? Midnight? Sun up? When does the Sabbath begin? It would take a long time, longer than you want me to take right now. It would take a long time to explain how cultures need to be reformed where we'll all come into sync with one another on this question. But when we are not in sync on it, I do believe you have the flexibility from week to week, to decide when the Sabbath will begin for you. Provided you love God, do whatever you want to do. Because that love of God is going to again, again be the proof of your heart. So that if a young person has a test on Monday morning, he or she comes to Pastor Bonas and says, can I study on Sunday night? And I say, sure, start your Sabbath Saturday night. But start your Sabbath Saturday night. That doesn't mean, oh, we can go ahead and do everything else we were going to do on Saturday night and then start studying on Sunday. If you want to begin your day of rest Saturday night, fine. And then it's over Sunday night after evening service or sundown, some objective you know, point like that. I think that's perfectly acceptable. Sometimes be midnight to midnight, maybe sun up to sun up. But all of God's people will have all of the daylight hours together and they all will rest 24 hours if we are Sabbath keepers. 
Notice as well the exhortation to Sabbath preparation in the Bible and also in the Catechism. This is really important. Last night, I was really beat when I went out to the car, got ready to come today, and I noticed I didn't have enough gas to get here and get home. And because I've come enough times, I know the gas stations that are open. I could make it down here this morning. I could get gas on the way home. And the Lord did a really wonderful thing and convicted my heart. He said, you're going to go preach on the Sabbath, and you're thinking you'll get gas on the way home? So I went back and got my clothes on and got in the car and drove out late last night and got my gas. Now I'm making fun of myself there. Actually, it was a joy to do that. And you should prepare for the Lord's Day, too. Maybe it's not gas. Maybe you're the guy who has to polish the kids' shoes. Do that Saturday night. Don't do it Sunday morning. And the various ways that we can set the day aside and be prepared to give an entire day to worship God, make those preparations. A third principle, and the crux, I think, for understanding one another, is recognizing individual variations in the application of these principles. I'll give you an example. Is there only one right time for having family devotions? Okay. Let's say you're a family that has devotions at breakfast, worship God at breakfast. And then you find out there's another family in the congregation that has family devotions at dinner. You say, what? How can you possibly be obedient to God and have your devotions in the evening? You're supposed to do it in the morning. Now, I give you a silly illustration because, you know, we do that to one another about the Sabbath, too. I caught myself doing this. I'm telling another story on myself. I worked in an OPC church once where the church secretary told me, horror of horror, she told me that she pruned her bonsai trees in her garden on Sunday afternoon, the day before. I said, you know, we're not supposed to work on Sunday. She goes, I didn't. I said, you trimmed your bonsai trees. She goes, I know. But we're not supposed to work. She goes, I didn't. I said, you're not supposed to work. I didn't. What's the problem here? Well, the problem is Dr. Bonson imposing his own personality on others. I hate yard work. <laughs> Somebody said, go out and trim the bonsai trees. I'd say, catch you later. I'm not interested in that kind of thing. But you see, for her, she was alone in a very quiet place doing something that was not strenuous labor. She said, that's how I get alone and I pray. Boy, did I feel like an idiot. And I should have because I was acting like a Pharisee there. In my pious intention to keep the Sabbath, I was imposing my personality on somebody else. Please recognize as you live with each other that one man's work is another man's rest and vice versa. I realize that could be used by people in a relativistic way so that there's no principle left at all. So you have some guy out there pumping iron, really sweating for an hour, and he goes, oh, that wasn't work for me, that was relaxation. Give me a break. I mean, there... There are things, I think, that are, should be obvious to everybody. But there's a lot of personal variation here in the application of these principles. Please take account of that. I'm not being a relativist in telling you that. I'm not saying make exceptions for disobedience. I'm saying recognize that throwing the football might not have been work for those children. Maybe a better illustration. You know, you're working. I just recently got a treadmill. I really like it. I'm using it a lot. It's making me feel better. Your working the treadmill to lose weight might be strenuous labor. 
whereas a diabetic heart patient might use the treadmill for medical necessities. But then if you're an overweight diabetic heart patient. See what I mean? Get all these things, incoming shells, watch out. You know, all these temptations, don't rationalize. Be pure in your heart. Seek first the kingdom of God. Love him above all. Let me close. How can you live with one another when these personal variations have to be taken into account? When you've got a Christian brother or sister or family in this congregation that makes a specific application of the Sabbath different from your own, what should you do about that? Three real quick words. First, don't be judgmental. Secondly, don't cause others to stumble. And third, don't exclude any of God's people. Don't be judgmental. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 29 and 30. Would you look at that with me? 1 Corinthians 10, 29 and 30. Paul says, Conscience, I say, not thine own, but the other's. For why is my liberty judged by another conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? Paul tells us we can't let our consciences lorded over one another. There are some real clear things. If somebody is working to make their money on Sunday and it's not a slavery situation and so forth, the elders are going to have to speak to that person. I'll be the first there in session to say we've got to help this person get out of that slavery, you know, and, and be able to worship God and so forth. But when it comes to these individual variations and applications, we have to be careful that we not take our conscience and personality and lord it over others. We don't need to give an account to each other. We all will give an account to Jesus. And so when you're tempted to want to become judgmental to someone else, if you're going to go and talk to them, I'd suggest that you not talk to them about what you think, but you simply exhort them to love Jesus. Are you loving Jesus when you're doing this on Sunday? Because, brother, if you are, I'm praying for you, that's great. And don't make it a matter of what you would do or feel comfortable doing somebody else. Secondly, don't cause others to stumble. Romans 14, 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge ye rather that no man put a stumbling block in his brother's way or an occasion of falling. That's worthy of a whole sermon in itself to explain what it is to be a stumbling block. But if I encourage you to do something which you believe to be wrong, then I'm making you stumble into sin. I'm making you violate your conscience before God. I'm making you live in a spirit of disobedience. And so... This afternoon, if I go out and decide to hit the tennis ball around, and I give you a call and I say, hey, come on over. We'll hit the tennis ball. We'll talk. It'll be great fellowship. And you say, well, I just I don't feel good before God that I can do that. I say, oh, come on. I can do it, and I'm your pastor. And so you can do it too, right? And I encourage you to do what your conscience doesn't allow you to do. I'm making you stumble into sin. And now we have to live together, brothers and sisters. And we're not, short of the day of glory, going to see eye to eye on all these applications. What are we going to do to keep peace in the congregation? Don't judge one another, and don't pull one another into sin. And don't exclude any of God's people. 
And that means being willing to let your liberty be curtailed for the sake of others. If we have a church picnic, and somebody says, hey, let's play a softball game. Dr. Bonson taught us recreation's okay. If it's fellowship, we won't be strenuous. It'll just be fun. And it turns out that every family in the church except one feels free to play softball. What do you think? At a church picnic, should we exclude that one family? Or should we look for ways that we can include all of God's people in the activities that we do? To live corporately. I mean, I've told you a lot about living in your family or individually living before God. Well, we've got to live together as a family in this church, too. And so the way you observe the Sabbath day with others who are invited to your home or when others are involved in a church activity requires sensitivity to these differing convictions. And you know, I'm perfectly happy to give up what I think is permissible to me if that means I can spend more time with you. Well, what about the Olympic question? So should I go ahead and ski so I can glorify Jesus, be a testimony on the Sabbath? Well, you may remember the Scottish runner, Eric Liddell, a number of years ago, ran the 400 meters of the Paris Olympics. Eric was a Christian from the Church of Scotland, and he took a stand for not running on the Sabbath when it was scheduled. And he was ridiculed in the European press, terribly cutting things said about him. And he was ridiculed in the Scottish press, which is even more amazing. So he got his race changed. And he won. He ran to the glory of God. And that's a great ending. But you know, I think far more importantly, the movie Chariots of Fire portrays this, although they have the person who hands him the note wrong in terms of what actually happened. But as Eric was walking to the blocks for that race, he was handed a note that he unfolded right before he went into the blocks. And the note simply said, them who honor me will I honor. May God honor you because you wish to honor his holy, special day. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to have pure hearts as we come before you. Help us to think clearly. Help us to think biblically as we get around to making specific applications of what we should do on the Lord's day. I do pray that I will have been faithful to your word in this exposition, and where I have not, that you will see to the corrections being made. I pray that you would help us all to take these principles, to hold on to them, not simply as legalistic rules, but as something joyful that we might learn how to please you and to take pleasure in you. Help us to honor you, because life isn't worth living without you. Help us to enter into your day with that spirit and a desire to do all those things.